On today's show, Dr. Chris Schaffer miraculously talks about not one, but two topics, public scholarship and student privacy. Plus, he recommends a movie and a song. It's going to be a good one. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Dr. Chris Schaffer is the instructor of music theory at the University of Colorado Boulder and an editor for Hybrid Pedagogy Publishing. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. In a recent workshop, you posed the question, what do people find out when they Google your name? So I'm going to turn the table on you, Chris, and say, what do we find out about you when we Google your name? Well, first, I, I want to make sure I don't take credit for that. That's from a, an article on Christopher Long's blog. He's now, at the time he was at Penn State, he's now a dean at Michigan State. And it's called The Googled Graduate Student. And I, I highly recommend taking a look at that, especially for grad students and early career scholars. But yeah, what happened when people Google me? Well, if you look up Google logged in as me, you see something very different than if you're logged in as someone else. Mm. So when I Google myself and I'm on the network, at uh, Colorado or at home, it sees my search history and it knows where I'm at and it knows that I'm logged in. And especially if I'm on Chrome, it probably Google probably has even more data on me that I'm not even aware of that it uses to tailor the results. So almost everything comes from my website or my blog or the University of Colorado's uh, College of Music website, some of my articles in hybrid pedagogy. Interestingly, the one blog post that comes up is from a few years ago, something I'm you know, it's not my favorite and it's not the most read on my blog, but it comes up and it's almost all me. Now, when I log into DuckDuckGo, which is a search engine that doesn't track specific user information, and it gives a little more general idea of what other people get when they look for me, it's split about 50-50 between myself and an interior designer from Massachusetts uh, who got chrisschaffer.com before I did. So a little lesson there. If you're thinking about getting a website, uh, I went with schaffermusic.com. So people want to take a look at chris.schaffermusic, they can. But uh, the idea is my wife and I kind of share that. and We each have our own subdomain on there. But someone else has chrisschaffer.com, and a lot of people look for me there. <laughs> and I think because when they're, they're Googling from elsewhere in the country or the world, they, they find her and her interior design business and then have to go back and add a few more words to Google in order to find, find what they're looking for on, on my side. So yeah, that's, that's what they find when they, when they Google me. It's, for the most part, stuff that I would like to be up there, but it is intermixed with, with at least one other person who shares my name. What do people not find out about you when they Google your name that would be important in us knowing about you? I think, interestingly... Um, this has been something that that I've kind of gone back and forth in terms of how much of it I share online um, would be like my religious faith. There's not a lot of that that comes up high in the search results. I, I certainly tweet from time to time things that are relevant to that. There's not a lot of pictures of me and my family. I, I do share that from time to time on Twitter. 
I'm in the process of quitting Facebook again for the fourth or fifth time now. Uh, there are some pictures there, though that's entirely public, but I leave my kids' names off uh, purposefully. Uh, my, my wife does share privately on, on uh, her social media accounts, and, and we email things with family members. But you won't see a lot of that stuff because I really want my public persona to be about me and, and let my children, when they're old enough, decide how much of them they want to put publicly online. Yeah, I, I think those are probably the big things Mm-hmm. missing. I mean, in terms of my, my work as, as a musician and as a scholar, you'll be able to find, at least eventually, you know, where I've performed and some of the pieces that I've written or arranged and the things that I've, I've written about music theory or about music pedagogy or, or education in general. I would love to share with you a bit about my story of, of what people find or used to find if they Googled me, just because I think it'll become rel- relevant in the second half of our conversation. Mm. About three years ago, if you had Googled my name, you would find um, what's called a mashup site. I'm sure you know that term, but other people mm-hmm. listening might not. And it was a mashup between Google Maps and the public records of people's political donations. And I had donated in the 2008 campaign. If you donated more than $200, then that becomes public record. And so what people would find is a link to, oh gosh, Ariana Huffington's uh, Huffington Post, the mashup of that. And you could find not only information about who I donated to as a public as public record, but also you could find a map to our house. <laughs> which mm. was yeah, really- it's, and that's something that a, a lot of people find when they Google themselves is a lot of those public information sites. It could be like whitepages.com type of things, uh, address lookup, reverse address lookup. A lot of those things are public record if you've bought a house uh, or sold a house, uh, if you look deep enough in the results, or if, if you have little enough else that's available online, that will be up near the top, maybe on a list of 30 other people in the country that have the same name or a similar name, but that information is pretty findable, which is why things like uh, the the Gamergate movement and things are, are so dangerous, this idea of doxing, of publishing people's private documents very prominently online. We, we don't have a nice fuzzy boundary between completely private and completely public like we used to. The internet has made things a little more binary. And so like you said, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit later, about the privacy implications of, of being in public. But actually what I found is one of the implications of being very active as, as a scholar and as a musician publicly is that that stuff comes up a lot earlier on the Google search results now than that kind of biographical, geographical information that I'm, I might not want up there quite so, so prominently. Yeah, and as you alluded to, you again, a lot of time has passed, but it used to be at least the first, if not the second page result. And now I haven't, I can't even find it by going far enough. So it's it's nice that other things do take precedence when you are actively managing your online presence. Well, yeah, gonna- that, that was Chris Long's main point with, his, or one of his main points with his article on the Google graduate student is that you want things that you have chosen to be on the top. And the default position of a lot of people is to keep as much private as possible so that only the best stuff is on your website. Uh, but as I've, I've shared, as I've led some of these workshops, I really encourage, especially young, young people emerging in, into these fields, to, to post things publicly as often as they can, as long as it's quality, or to curate other people's things so that they become a site where people go to find other things that are of value in, in the same field, so that you're not left with 
nothing on the Google search results or one result that is your professional web page. And then now all these public records, other people who share your name, and then maybe some things that have happened in the past that you might not want being public. Mm-hmm. One of the things I didn't share about you when reading a little bit of your bio is a really big thing. So I'm, I'm going to come back to it now. You are the lead author of Open Music Theory. Would you share about this site and how it came about and why people might want to go take a look at it? Right. So open music theory came about because in my first job as a music theorist, I had searched through the standard uh, common textbooks in my field for undergraduate music theory courses and chose what I I thought was a a really solid one that I thought would serve these students I'd never met before well in a college I had never taught in. And it, it turned out that, well, there were some things about it that were very valuable. There were some things missing. And as I looked at the other books on my shelf, occasionally I'd find another textbook that would do the job a little bit better. But I had uh, students at that university that were from a very different kind of program than most of the textbooks are are written in. And, And that's not to say anything about value or rankings or pecking order. They had a very different professional emphasis at that school than at the schools where most of the common textbooks are written. And so I started to supplement the textbook with things that I wrote. And I did that as I did that more and more and started talking largely on social media with uh, Bryn Hughes and, and Brian Mosley, the co-authors uh, with me on Open Music Theory, we realized that we were all doing the same thing at very different schools. It, it turns out that uh, a lot of schools are, are different uh, from the schools and the environments in which some of the textbooks are written. And in a, a very skills-oriented course sequence, like music theory and, and ear training, musicianship types of courses, the quality of the materials given to the students for their outside-of-class practice is really important. And so as we found we were all doing the same thing and for the same reasons, we started to share the work. I had posted my, thing, my stuff on GitHub which is a, a place for, for sharing code and other text-based things and, and working on it collaboratively. And so they, they joined me there. And uh, actually, I think we were all using WordPress for a while. Then we switched to GitHub and we decided to, to collaborate more intently. And we started you know, writing what the other people weren't so that we were covering each other's bases and finishing faster and then just making small tweaks when we shared it with our students. And then we did a crowdfunding campaign a couple summers ago to uh, support some work putting it all together into a, a, a now a beta edition, a version that, that could be used instead of as a supplement, but as the main textbook now. And we've tried, as, as we put this together, to, to be sensitive to the kind of technological needs that our, our students might have. So, for example, there's not a ton of video on there. As, as uh, trendy as that is right now, and as much as I had done that uh, in my early days of teaching, we realized bandwidth limitations are a big issue for a lot of students. So we wanted things that were very text-based. Also, you can't watch a video while you're playing your instrument to double-check things, but you can bring up a bullet list or a, a graphic example and leave that up on your screen while you're performing and playing and singing and, and you know doing things with your hands and, and your mouth. And so we've we've tried to have as many media as possible, but with careful pedagogical choices for those media. And to give the students something that can support their own work in the classroom rather than simply be things they need to memorize. So there's a lot of skills orientation. There's a lot of, you know, what you need to to get going, to get making music as you explore these new structures and styles in, in your music making. 
What was it like to build up the trust with your co-authors? Had you worked on anything like this before? Had you, did you have to be really intentional about talking about what your aims were? It worked naturally pretty well. I, I think we knew we were all on the same page. Mm-hmm. Uh, having had the conversations beforehand that we were doing these things for the same reasons and uh, some of us were starting, I, I think we were not all starting from the same textbook beforehand that, that we were finding needed some, some supplementing. But we were ideologically in line. We had worked together uh, for the, the unconference, um, flip camp music theory now called engaging students. So it's, it's wider than just music theory, but we were all experimenting with the flip classroom with standards based grading, with bringing a real skill orientation to the music theory curriculum. And, you know, we're not the only ones doing those things, of course, but having built up this community on Twitter and having, had some experience doing that and having seen each other's resources ahead of time, it really, it started, we were borrowing each other's stuff first. <laughs> then we decided to collaborate. So we already had that base of, well, we know that we have the same goals pretty much and we've seen each other's material and like them and are already borrowing. And so we just decided to make the collaboration a little more formal and yeah. One of the things I know that you recently just came off, I don't know if we could call it a road tour, but <laughs> you've been doing a number of talks around public scholarship. And mm-hmm. I, I recognize some of the people listening today may not even have heard that phrase before. Could you share a little bit? I, I know that you just gave us an example of public scholarship, but perhaps give us some other examples and give a definition of public scholarship. Right. So by public scholarship, there are a few flavors that it could come in. There's a lot of talk these days, and we're just coming off of open access week last week, at least as of when we're recording, there's a focus on research being published in ways that anyone can access, whether or not they subscribe to a journal. And this is a big thing for public institutions like the one where I teach, where taxpayer money, public grants are funding a lot of the research. And then often the publishers are uh, requiring further payment from those institutions for access to it. And, and so uh, like a, a taxpayer could end up paying three times for a journal article. They pay once to support the grant and maybe the salaries of the people who are doing the research. They pay a second time in support of the institution and the, the library at the institution that buys a subscription to the journal. And then they pay a third time because they don't have an official affiliation with the university and can't make it to the library to download the article locally. And so if they want to buy the article online to read it, they have to pay a third time. And this has been something that a lot of open access advocates have drawn attention to. And the movement is growing and a number of public institutions are requiring now that at least a draft of these publications be placed in an open access institutional repository that will allow scholars and and interested people from from you know any part of society to access uh, the research, and I think this is really an, an important thing. I mean, for me, um, there's there's an ethical aspect of this. If if we're as a humanist talking about human knowledge and advancing human knowledge, we don't advance human knowledge by publishing something and then uh, putting it inside a fence and making it hard to to get through uh, to get to that knowledge. I, I really want what I do to be available to to a broader audience. Now, but that's just about access. Uh, in, in my own work, I, I try to um, write in in ways that could be accessible to readers who don't have as much technical know-how in the field. I mean, sometimes we need that. It's important. I was just reading a discussion today online about academic language. And if 
we're being too too technical and too jargony in what we write. And well, that can sometimes be the case. A great point was brought up that sometimes in order to be clear about what you've studied, you need a level of complexity in your writing in order to do that. But I don't want to do that unnecessarily. I, I want to in, engage as many people as possible with with my my work so that my work can can have value for as many people. So it, that that plays into what it means to me to be a public scholar to try to write something that as many people as possible can can get something out of. And there's also the open source scholarship movement. And I, I wrote about this in hybrid pedagogy, the, the idea that uh, if we share our research, not, not just so people can read it, but that so others can more easily build on it, uh, we can work together collaboratively as, as a larger network of, of scholars and researchers and practitioners in order to advance human understanding um, in, in our fields. And so that's an aspect of what it means to be public too, not, not just that the public can read what we wrote and understand what they read, that there's some sense of public or community ownership over uh, that, that research. You're one of the editors of Hybrid Pedagogy, and we recently had, I guess it wasn't that recently, Jesse Stommel on also from mm-hmm. Hybrid Pedagogy. And one of the things he talked about, and I also know from having read extensively on your site, is there's, it's just all built around that. If you're going to want to write for hybrid pedagogy, then you need to link to other articles that are both on the site as well as outside the site. So it's it's having a conversation instead of that this is one article that's the answer on whatever question it is being posed and that's going to be the end of it. I, I re- it really makes it that much more engaging to read. Yeah, and I think at least as many articles open up questions as provide answers in, in that journal. And I, th- I think that's, that's good for fostering dialogue, which is in turn good for us reaching higher levels of understanding. Uh, you know, an article can, can do its work of advancing human knowledge by saying something important and definitive that now we know. And it can advance human knowledge by raising a question that causes us to revisit our assumptions, to revisit our own understanding, to start questioning others and tossing ideas back and forth. And by raising the question, sometimes we advance knowledge more than simply by stating a fact. And in fact, that's a growing movement in pedagogy uh, to, to lead with questions. Well, it's, it's a growing movement. It's been around forever. It's, it's a, a new manifestation of the Socratic method. You, you ask questions and you uh, lead students through guided discovery. And, and we've, we've written and talked a lot at hybrid pedagogy about publishing being a form of pedagogy and pedagogy being a form of publishing. And the idea that, that we're, we're all involved in the education of, of others and ourselves and the advancement of human knowledge, whether that's in a class or in a journal. And if raising a question helps advance knowledge, we raise a question. And that, that's, that's why I really like working with hybrid pedagogy. It's very much about the community and about people growing as a result of their interactions with each other um, on our website or off that in Twitter discussions and live discussions in person at conferences, whatever it might be. How can we create authentic voices in our online presences? <laughs> um, there's a really simple answer to that. And it can fit in a tweet. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was um, so excited. I was ready to type. <laughs> Um, wow, I'm so glad I'm talking to you today. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, that's, it, it's work, right? I mean, getting to know who you are and, I mean, yourself, right? Discovering who you are and also going through the process of transforming who you are and growing 
uh, as a person is is a lifelong process that doesn't stop and and so the idea that then there'd be a really simple way to to project that as an isolated moment in in time digitally online i i think is is i, I don't know that's something we're going to have a, an easy answer to there- i guess more more than projecting my identity online it's it's much more about cultivating a community online mm-hmm. like I, i've led some workshops on using social media as, as scholars or as artists. And I've, I've experienced others or, or seen the, the advertising for others. And it can be really easy to think about self-branding and self-marketing and entrepreneurship, which it, that's the culture we live in. And, and we've, we've got to sell what we have to an extent uh, in, in order to, to make a living at it. And, and so I've, you know, that's, that's the way the world is. But I'd much rather focus on the kind of community we can build and, and the relationships we can build. It's, it's not a, as much about projecting who I am as it is about connecting with others. Now, projecting who I am so that we can find each other is, is something. But as I found in places like Twitter, like now that we have social media sitting right alongside the kind of web 1.0, like here's some information, come, come read it, come download it. We, we can put our, our thoughts, our, our finished thoughts, or at least our, our finished for now thoughts in a relatively static place and put it right next to where we're having our social engagements. And I think, as I've argued in in the workshop I gave very recently, building an audience is really a lot like building a community. And you build that community not by being the best voice, but by being a good colleague, even by being a friend. And it takes time. But as we build these relationships, whether they're professional relationships or personal relationships or more often a mix of the two, that building community, it's the community interaction, not what I do as an individual, that would invite someone else to want to be part of that. Um, I think we invite people into community by being a good community more than we invite people into a community by being the person that they would want to start a community with, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. We've talked a little bit about public scholarship. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about privacy. And especially I know you have some thoughts as we consider asking our students to engage more online. What ethical considerations exist as we ask them to do that? Yeah, so I, I started out a few years ago really gung-ho about this idea about students working in public, and particularly music students who perform in public all the time. That's what they're training to do. They've, they've done quite a bit of it uh, already by the time they, they get to music school. And I really wanted to take the, the academic side of things, the, the critical, reflective theoretical side of things and bring that public performance into it. But there are a lot of implications, especially online, that you wouldn't get from the same thing as as giving a recital or even giving a pre-concert lecture like a a music theorist or a music historian might do. And at the same time, the platforms that are the best for cultivating that public presence, for building that community, for finding people who are already there who might share the same interests or, or goals they're platforms that are, are corporately owned. They're platforms that, that sometimes, the, as I've said about Twitter, the, the affordances of Twitter that make it so easy to, to, bo- to build a new community or to grow a community are, are the same affordances that, that allow for online harassment and abuse. And it can be something that can be a stark reality to send our students in, into this world unprepared. And so I pulled back quite a bit. I, I haven't had... I don't know, share like any big horror stories about what happened, just a growing realization, sometimes from conflict between students who are commenting on each other's blogs, which are outside of the, you know, you know my, my control as, as the instructor or um, just, 
you know, the growing realization that they're uncomfortable with it and, and need some more support in growing that part of, of their, their digital life, their scholarly life. I've pulled back a little bit in order to focus particularly on specific areas where we might do that, where there's room in class to build in that support for doing it well, like model what it looks like, do some peer review, even some instructor review before things get published, allow them to publish anonymously or pseudonymously if, if they desire, doing things that, that help them protect their privacy. I've got a few tweets printed off and taped on my door, as, as one does. One of them is, is from, from Audrey Waters, where she says something along the lines of, if you're going to require students use digital tools, what do you teach them about passwords? And that's, that's just a small statement in, uh, in a much broader issue of digital privacy and, and digital ownership. Uh, but I think it speaks to something really important that we often, and, and certainly I did, we, we see an idea that, that looks fun and it looks great or it's worked well for us as a scholar. And we have to really think about what are, what are all the implications for our, our students when we bring this in, for asking them to sign up for Dropbox and attach themselves to a shared folder. What privacy concerns does that bring up, especially since there have been some uh, privacy issues with Dropbox, there have been some with Google, uh, and, and certainly we know the kind of online harassment that has happened on Twitter. What, what are we asking our students to open themselves up to and how are we going to support them in it? Now, there, there have been some success stories, certainly, with using this. For example, last year I had students editing Wikipedia articles on pieces of music that we studying in class. And one group of students put their materials up as a very prominent piece of music that uh, many people had alerts on the Wikipedia page. So they could see when edits were added. And um, one particular person, I, I won't share any names here or, or pieces, but uh, <laughs> one particular person watching the site just deleted everything they contributed right away. And at first they were worried that I wouldn't see it, that they wouldn't get the, the credit for it for the class. And I said, well, I, I can see the, the history in Wikipedia. I can see what you put in and, and you shared it with me on Google Drive. So I, I know that you did it. Don't worry about the grade. Would you like me to step in and be part of this, this conversation though? Um, or do you want to just leave it as is or, or whatever? And, and not everyone in the group wanted to jump back in, but a couple people in that group decided they wanted to, to get that material back in. So they pasted it back into the article. And then the, uh, the person who had deleted it said something mildly snarky, but then started engaging them point by point. And some of the points, yeah, he, he was right. They, they were missing some critical information there. But, you know, they're, they're undergraduate music students. They're just learning this stuff for the first time. So it's, you know, that's to be expected. But there were several points at which, as they argued back and forth with him, they won the debate. Mm. And <laughs> now a very prominent musical article on Wikipedia has information from them that was the result of this process of going back and forth with someone very senior in the field who was challenging them in, in ways even beyond what I challenged them to in class because we were at a pretty introductory stage with our studies of this. And so there's some sense in which some of the students were fine just kind of bowing out. Hey, I, I did what I had to do for class. I learned some stuff about this music. That's fine. But a couple really wanted to go that route of, okay, what does it mean to be a public scholar? What does it mean to have this debate with someone outside the class? And they saw some real value here because there, there are stakes there, whether or not what their insights get a voice on this very prominent platform. And, and it does now as a result of, of their, their willing to, to go there. But I, I was there to support them. I was there to talk them through it. And I was ready to step in if I needed to. But they said, no, we'll take it. But, you know, sometimes I have to step in and, uh, you know, when, when, they, when they ask it or when it looks like, you know, they, 
they, they really need that support. And but that's something we have to be prepared to do as instructors if we're going to pull that that expectation into the class. Have you had your undergraduate students show a sense of marvel or wonder that things like this are even possible to engage with a well-known artist just just through online tools like you're describing? Or is it just it, it doesn't really hit them as much as it might hit someone like me because they've always seen the world like that? Yes. Uh, it, it, it may be something where a previous generation would have marveled even more. I, I don't actually know uh, <laughs> that. But yeah, there have been instances where, like, for example, I had my first year music theory students a few years ago uh, looking at different no- music notation applications uh, on, on their computers and, and tablets and trying out a few of them and then starting to really dig in and get their hands dirty with a couple before they settled on, on the one that they wanted to, to use for, for their projects. And it, it was funny, the, the open source applications and kind of the recent startup applications were very active on social media. The, the established, you know, Finale and Sibelius, these programs that have been around for a long time, lots of iterations, millions of users, you know, their, their Twitter accounts are just announcements. But as they were just tweeting in class about the programs they were using, some of them started to get responses from the original programmers or from the official social media account of it. So to, to see them respond with, with helpful tips or in one case, just, just a nice little, you know, like a retweet and a smiley face from a programmer who, who liked the, the positive thing that they said about the application. They're like, oh, they, they saw it, you know, and, and they were, they came back the next morning when, when that had happened overnight. And in this case, the developer uh, was in Finland. And so it happened overnight. They saw it in the morning. They're like, oh. and I've had students get uh, retweets and replies from this, this choral composer, Eric Whitaker, that they were just like, oh, you know, like there's, it, there's, there's still something of celebrity left in, in music still. And so to be able to interact with those people has, has been great. When I've had students interact with scholars, uh, like we use Twitter to interview Jesse Stommel, you've had on, on the podcast uh, in the past, talking about digital humanities and public scholarship in the course of a class. Uh, and in other cases, I just said, here are some authors you, you'll be reading. Here are their Twitter accounts. They're pretty active writing about digital humanities. You might want to follow them. And, and in some cases, they're getting replies. And I think there it actually ended up being a little more of an expectation because the first thing we did was, was interview a couple people on Twitter. So now it's like, oh, well, of course the authors are going to reply to our questions. <laughs> like, well, maybe not, but it, it's nice when they do. Yeah. So, so yeah, there's, there's definitely been, been some of those situations where they really were able to connect with people outside, and including you know the people who are the big names. And yeah. What have I not asked you about public scholarship or student privacy that we should talk about before we go on to recommendations? Hmm. Everything on my list from before the, the podcast, we've, we've hit. I'm trying to think if there's any point that's come to mind, but no, I, I can't think of anything. I was cracking uh, up because you and I are emailing back and forth and I'm, can we take both of your talks that you've been giving recently and smoosh it into 30 minutes or so? <laughs> you were, uh, yeah, you were yeah. a trooper for being up for that. <laughs> yeah, well, well, certainly if, if someone wants to, to look at my website, I've I posted notes and slides and, and links uh, from, from both of those recently so people can, can check that out. But yeah, I, th- I think it, it really is, I mean, if I'm going to kind of sum it up in, in a sentence or two, it would be uh, public scholarship is really important. We're advancing human knowledge and that's something that I think we should involve our students in as well as ourselves. But we also want to be sure that as we're making demands of people, particularly our students, and I think institutionally, if we're going to make demands of 
of the scholars working for the institution, we want to be careful to think about what kind of support is going to be necessary, what kind of training is going to be necessary, and, and what kind of warnings do we need to give before people take that first step out there. I really appreciate you not coming down hard on either side, because it's not that you don't want them to do it, but recognizing there are implications and, and there is education that needs to happen before you could could ethically start to have this be used in your class. I'm not phrasing that very well. But <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I often talk uh, about, I use music as a metaphor for this. You know, there's, there's an appropriate role for the practice room. There's an appropriate role for the, the one-on-one private lesson. There's an appropriate role for the studio class where you play for, you know, fellow students and, and colleagues, and then for the public concert or recital. And these are all different things that were, uh, are useful for different purposes and, require a different level of comfort with the material. And and often, and I found certainly in the early days of using Twitter in class, I was asking students to take their practice room work and put it on the recital stage. Mm-hmm. Now, it, w- it was more like kind of on the street corner where most people walking by wouldn't, wouldn't even notice. But you never know who's walking by. Uh, and so I think that idea of giving them support so that they have a little chance to do some, some, some woodshedding in the practice room, some studio class-like work before they go out and and perform the recital, so to speak, um, is is not without value. Now we can certainly learn things from just stepping out, but sometimes those lessons come a lot harder than they need to, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and hard to erase, as we've yes. <laughs> just to let you know, all of the resources that Chris ha- is sharing about and that I'll be sharing about too will be available on the show notes page. That's at teachinginhighered.com/slash/seventy-four. And this is the time in the show when we each give some recommendations. And I am going to recommend on Twitter, and I hope I'm going to pronounce this right, N. Sifuentes Goodbody shared some Zotero tutorials, and they're absolutely wonderful. I have some that I've been using with my students, and I'm just going to pretty much delete that link and <laughs> be referring people mm-hmm. over to this one. It's universitytalk.org slash Zotero. And one of the things I love to see at that site, too, is that students have started to engage there, too. It's a growing and and evolving site. So that's really worth checking out. And again, it'll be on the show notes, too. So that was N. Sifuentes Goodbody shared those with me on Zotero, as well as with Scott Self, who we had back on an episode where we shared about Evernote. And we were both just tickled and excited to get that resource and start using it with our students. And what is your recommendation today, Chris? Or recommendations. I, I need to have plural. <laughs> yeah, so I've got two. Uh, I recently watched the documentary Citizen Four, and since we've been talking about digital privacy, uh, it's it's documentary about Ed, Ed Snowden and his release of some top secret NSA data and his interactions with the journalists that he shared that with in an early stage. And it's 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 amazing. It's really really well done and raises. The, the issues in a way that I, I think a lot of people will, will walk away from that saying, I might want to do some things differently from what we do online to what we do when we vote. Um, so that's it's definitely something worth taking a look at. And I believe it's currently available streaming um, from HBO. Um, and there are, of course, other places to find it as, as well. Also, just the other night, I, I caught the, the video release um, of Adele's song from her new album, 25, the song Hello. This is the first one, and I think the only one still that's been been released with the album coming out next month. And I know there's been a lot of anticipation from uh, musicians and music fans about 
what would be what, what this album would be like uh, given her vocal surgery that she's had uh, recently. And I'll say, first of all, I'd really liked it. And um, I, I know that she poured her tea the wrong way. And there are people on the internet that have strong feelings about how you pour your tea in music videos. <laughs> but um, from a, a vocal perspective, I, I really, really enjoyed it. And I think the songwriting, this particular song played more to her strengths than some of the, the songs in the past. So yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the album coming out. So check out that video on, on YouTube if the album isn't out. And otherwise, uh, check out that album. I'll, I'll be listening to it soon. I I was going to say, I can't wait till I hang up on you, but that sounds wrong. Um, I, can't, <laughs> I can't wait uh, to listen to it as soon as we get off the phone. <laughs> well, Chris, I just want to thank you so much for accepting my invitation to be on the show. I know you have a really packed schedule and how you spend your time is important. You mentioned your family earlier, and I know that every choice that you make to say yes to an invitation like this is investing in a community. And just thank you for investing in the people that want to get better at teaching in higher ed. I really appreciate you spending your time with us today. Yeah, th- thank you for the invitation. It was a great conversation. I'm looking forward to, to seeing what conversation is sparked by, by this episode. Thanks so much. I so appreciated having Dr. Chris Schaffer on the show. We actually, after we stopped recording, I felt like I could have just kept recording and had another episode just about more on privacy. He was such a wealth of information and really appreciate him investing his time in our community. And if you have yet to subscribe to our weekly updates, that's where you get all the show notes automatically in your inbox, along with either a blog about teaching or or productivity. And I encourage you to do that. I don't spam you. I don't send you lots of emails, just one a week with those show notes and that article. And last but not least, I treasure you for going and either writing a review or even just rating the show on whatever service it is that you use to listen to it. It's a really easy thing to do. If you subscribe on iTunes, you just go up there on iTunes. You can click however many stars you think is warranted, and it really does help other people discover the show. So I'd love to have you do that. Thanks again for listening. If you have suggestions for future guests, I would really treasure those. You can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. That's where I get a number of good ideas for people to have on the show or things that you would like us to talk about. So please feel free and do that. And thanks again for listening. I really enjoy the emails and the tweets that you send and just being together as a community teaching in higher ed. 